If you would uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. I'd like to begin by asking you all, if there has ever been a time in your life where you have struggled with spiritual depression or doubts? You know, this seems to take many of us by surprise as if this were something uncommon. Uh, I have ministered to many people uh, in my life who have uh, who are currently in a season of spiritual depression or were coming out of a season of spiritual depression. And then many um, you know, young Christians who had started out uh, on fire and things were going very well, and then to see them enter into a season of spiritual depression. But for you, if you have endured this, and, and chances are you have, was this set on by a tragedy? A particular sin. Or maybe it just came out of nowhere. Most of us have endured at some point or another what we might recall uh, as an extended spiritual wilderness. And it is during these seasons that we must cling to the promises that are offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hope is the only antidote to despair. While we are never guaranteed an easy and comfortable life, the gospel offers hope and hope abundantly. Today we will be unpacking the rich gospel truths from the gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, and a message that I have titled, Our Blessed Hope. So I'll begin reading in verse, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful for this word. Lord, and... Um, Specifically on this day, Lord, on 9-11, as uh, we, we recall and remember the events that transpired 20-plus uh, years ago, Lord, that was a time when we can think back where there was great tragedy and great despair, heartbreak, chaos. But, Lord, in the middle of that, Lord, we saw your mighty hand at work. Lord, in the middle of that chaos, Lord, we saw unity in this nation. Unity is a virtue, Lord, that comes from you. We saw a time, we recall a time when, uh, when people uh, gathered and they, they bared burdens of one another. We were united, 
Lord, in our heartbreak and our fear. Lord, we saw as a result of that, many turn to you. Lord, this is just another instance when you take something broken and fallen and awful and you flip it to your glory. Lord, it was because those events, Lord, that you led me to war. When, uh, you, you led me to war 10 years after that and then brought me home. And in the midst of the mental struggles and torment that I went through, Lord, I was, my heart was turned to you. Lord, may we never wallow in our despair. But Lord, this morning as we unpack this rich word that we remember the hope that is offered in you. Father, in our brokenness, that you would bring to mind the gospel of our salvation and the refuge that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we trust you and we praise you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have just read one of the most profound passages in the Bible. Jesus uses the simplest language possible, yet he teaches a truth that is so deep that no man will ever be able to fully comprehend it this side of glory. Still, it is a truth so simple that even small children can grasp the heart of it. To provide some context here, Christ is preaching this message to the same crowd who witnessed him feeding the 5,000 with two pieces of fish and five loaves of bread. They were so enamored by this miracle that they began to pursue Jesus. John records that one day after Jesus performed this great miracle, people got in boats to cross the sea to find him. And when they do find him, they were curious as to how he got across. They remembered that he had not got on the boat with his disciples. John records in verses 16 through 21 how he has reached his disciples. We see in these verses Jesus actually walks on the water to reach his disciples. Needless to say, these people were amazed at the miracles that Jesus had performed. However, Christ points out that most of them were missing the point of these miracles. Even after witnessing all these miraculous signs, they still did not recognize them as signs identifying Jesus as the kind of Messiah the Father had sent him to be. They were only concerned with the immediate results of the miracle, not what the miracle signified. Christ then takes this opportunity to teach. Christ explained that they should not be concerned with the food that is temporal, but that which leads to eternal life. It is at this point Christ begins to further reveal who he is. And to those who are being drawn by the Father, the way to eternal life. In these verses, we find yet another invitation from our Lord. It is an invitation designed to inspire confidence and rest. 
These words speak of the confidence that rested within the heart of our Savior as he looked toward Calvary. These words speak of the confidence that sinners can have as they see the horror and understand the penalty of their sins. These words speak of the confidence that can be possessed by the saints of God as they journey toward their home in heaven. This is our blessed hope. And it has much to say to us today. Let's take some time to consider together the great blessings that our Savior has embedded for us in his word. Beginning with point one, we observe our Savior's gift. Leading up to verse 37, Jesus has just declared his identity to the Jews. In verse 35, he declared himself to be the bread of life. He tells them very clearly that anyone who will receive him will neither hunger nor thirst. Then in verse 36, Jesus makes a sad statement. He says, you have seen me and yet do not believe. This statement brings into sharp focus the fact that the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, John went so far as to say in chapter 1, verse 11, that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Some people might have seen this rejection by the Jews as an indication that the ministry of Jesus Christ was a failure. The very people that he had come to save had turned a deaf ear to his preaching. Those who were thinking... This, we're obviously missing the big picture. The, verse, the first part of verse 37 tells us about the Father's gift to the Son. This gift is the proof and the promise that his mission into this world was not in vain. This gift, though hard to comprehend for us mortals, is a greater blessing than we can possibly fathom. Let's examine it for a moment. Verse 37 begins by explaining the character of this gift. All that the Father gives me. The character of this gift is seen in the word all. That word encompasses within it every sinner who would ever be washed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That word speaks of every redeemed sinner from the sweet little girl saved in her Sunday school class to the repentant convict that sits on death row. That word speaks of all those who would ever be justified by grace through faith alone for salvation. If you are trusting in Christ, or if you will ever trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are God's gift to his Son. For anyone who is remotely aware of their sin and the condition of man might wonder, how in the world are we a gift? However, Christ gets exactly what he wanted. A people that he has set apart for his own glory. 
Next, we acknowledge the contributor of this gift. When Christ states, the Father gives me. I have already made mention of this, but God is the one behind the gift. The entire Trinity is involved in this great gift of salvation. The Father gave us to his Son in eternity past. Jesus accomplished the redemptive work in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit changes our heart and applies this gift. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. I believe the Word of God is very clear about the matter of redemption. No one simply chooses God. They are chosen. No one resolves to pursue righteousness and look to the Lord Jesus Christ by their own free will. Why, you might ask. The sinner's will is fallen. It's broken, rendering him incapable of coming to Christ on his own. The sinner cannot respond to Jesus unless Jesus first comes to the sinner. Left to himself, the lost sinner will always seek the things of the world and of the flesh. My wife and I have conversations sometimes um, when we, we, we have a, a, a difficult situation uh, with an unbelieving person. We have family members, we have friends um, that are unbelievers. And uh, some of those people um, are not very kind. Some of those people um, say rude things. Some of those people uh, don't care much about the words we have to say when we are speaking truth to them. And one of the things that my, my wife is probably the most mindful of to say is we can't expect people to give something that they don't have. You can't expect people to give something that they don't have. So what we mean by that is when we are ministering and we, we are having conversations and we're interacting with those who are not filled with the Spirit of God, we can't expect them to be held, to, to, to do the things of God. We can't hold them to the same standard that we can believers because they don't have it. They have a fallen and broken nature, one that pines after the things of the flesh, one that only delights in, in, in sin. This is all of us, born, dead, in our trespasses and sins, and left to our own devices, we would always choose death. So, left to himself, the lost sinner will always seek the things of the world and of the flesh. Many who oppose the doctrines of grace do so with an incorrect understanding of Reformed Christianity. And when I say Reformed Christianity, what I mean is the Christianity that was birthed out of the Protestant Reformation, which, in fact, was just a recovery of ancient, historic, Orthodox Christianity. They believe Reformed Christianity teaches that we are all a bunch of pre-programmed robots. 
But no good Reformed Christian believes such a thing. Biblical Calvinism affirms that all men make free choices. However, we also believe that his will is bound to his nature. So people will always make choices according to their nature. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He's talking to the church here. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, executing the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature, by nature we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The will of man comes from the heart. And if that heart is totally corrupt, as we see here in the scriptures, logically, how might that affect one's choices? In modern times, we observe rockets fired so that they escape from the earth's gravity. To accomplish this, there is a great complex of electrical wires all woven into one control center called the U.S. Mission Control. According to the Bible, the heart is the mission control of a man's life. The heart is the motivational complex of a man, the basic disposition, the entire bent of character, the moral inclination. The mind, emotions, desires, and will are all wires which we observe. None is independent, but all are welded into a common circuit. If mission control is wired for evil, the will cannot make the rockets of life travel on the path of righteousness. The will cannot escape the direction of thoughts, feelings, longings, and habits to produce behavior of an opposite moral quality. The will may be the button which launches the spacecraft, but the launching button does not determine the direction. Direction is dependent upon the complex wiring system. Unless God intervenes... Unless he intervenes and powerfully changes our mission control, our wills will always be guided by a system that is corrupted and bent on destruction. Whether we choose to truly acknowledge it or not, all are born dead in trespasses and sins and cannot come to God. God must make the first move. A.W. Pink once stated, God is not working at random. The gospel has been sent forth on no uncertain mission. The final outcome in the conflict between good and evil has not been left undetermined. How many are to be saved or lost depends not on the will of the creature. Everything was infallibly determined and immutably fixed by God from the beginning. And all that happens in time is but the accomplishment of what was ordained in eternity. 
We must now look at the consequences of this gift. The work that God began in eternity past will be carried out fully in time. Every person the Father has given to the Son will be saved by the grace of God. According to this verse, all will come. All that the Father has called will most certainly come. When we speak of these matters, we have stepped out into the deep waters. We are treading in waters that the greatest human minds have not been able to fathom. We are discussing concepts so difficult to understand that few can articulate them accurately or with understanding. We are talking about the great matters of divine election and human responsibility. There can be no doubt that salvation is based on God's choice. Salvation is a matter of grace, and he saves whomever he will. But there is also no denying the fact that man is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. Here is the truth. All who are in hell made it there by their own efforts. However, all who have been saved have been so by God's free grace. God gets all of the glory. Charles Spurgeon once described God's election and human responsibility as a pair of railroad tracks. They run parallel to one another and, ne and never meet. But if you look far enough into the distance, they appear to seemingly intersect. These doctrines are not easy, but there is undoubtedly a divine harmony between the providence of God and the responsibility of men. On another occasion, someone asked Spurgeon how he reconciled the doctrine of election with the doctrine of human responsibility. To which Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, I never reconcile, friends. While we may not understand election, predestination, and human responsibility, they are all still biblical doctrines that must be believed. He actually goes as far to say, if you try to explain election, you will lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you will lose your soul. Verse 37 is brimming with the confidence of Christ. It looked at many times from a human perspective like the ministry of Jesus was a failure. Jesus knew, however, that the Father had given him many sheep. His rejection, suffering, and death was accomplished with full confidence. There was no uncertainty in his mission. The cross was never plan B. This leads us to our next point, the Savior's grace. Jesus had confidence because of the Father's gift. He knew that his death would accomplish a certain salvation for his sheep. Sinners may also share in this confidence by looking to Christ and his redemptive work. We have confidence because of the Savior's grace, not because of anything that we contribute, not 
because of anything that we bring forth, but because of our Savior's grace. Christ has stated that all that the Father has given him will come to him. This phrase, come to him, is essential. It declares the way of salvation. Eternal life does not come by being a better person or doing good things. Eternal life is granted by coming to a person. Salvation is only apprehended by grace through faith in Christ alone. Salvation is not some difficult, mystical process. You don't have to pray through to be regenerated. You don't have to recite the sinner's prayer. You don't have to walk the Romans' road. All you must do is repent and look. At the end of verse 37, we observe the energy of his grace when he says, I will never cast out. Jesus promises all those who hear God's call and come to him that he will not turn them away. The words cast out had the idea of driving something away. They are violent words. We need never fear coming to Christ. He always stands ready to receive you. Regardless of where the path of life has taken you, what sin you may have entangled yourself in, Christ will never turn you away if you will come to him. Make a habit of preaching this truth to yourself. Emotions are unbelievably deceiving. Jeremiah 17.9 states that the heart is deceitful among all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? This is reason 577 that you shouldn't listen to your heart. I am convinced that the primary reason many struggle to experience the joy and peace that is offered through our relationship with Christ is because of shame and guilt. I believe most of us would confess that Christ died for our sin, but do we truly grasp the reality of that? How can we confess that Christ bore our penalty on the cross and yet still feel like we are unable to experience the fullness of of a relationship with him because of guilt? Guilt that has been paid and atoned for. I want to make something very clear. Your past sins are no hindrance to his saving grace. Your present condition is no hindrance to his saving grace. Your future failures are no hindrance to his saving grace. If you will come, if you will come, he will by no means cast you out. This brings us to our last point, the Savior's guarantee. In verse 38 through 40, we observe that God's plan is to save the sinner by grace through 
faith. I've heard people ask before, well, why does it have to be this way? Why is it by faith that we, we come to be saved? Why is it by faith that we come to be redeemed? Why is this the way to do it? Because this was God's plan. This was the vehicle. This was the method that he chose, that he ordained, by which he would bring his own to himself. Christ declares, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Repeat that one more time. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. When lost people come to Christ for salvation, they are immediately sealed with his precious spirit. And then adopted as children and granted eternal life. When he saves them, he saves them for time and eternity. It is the Father's will that Jesus should lose nothing. Our blessed hope rests not in our ability to perform and hopefully be godly enough to somehow weasel our way into the kingdom with our filthy rags, but in God's omnipotent grip. Jesus said that this was the Father's will. There are two Greek words translated will in the New Testament. The first is bulamide. And this word refers to a wish or a fond desire. The second word is the one used here in this passage. And the word is thelema. And this this word refers to what one has determined to be done. Bulamai is a hope-so thing. While dilemma is a determination. God does not just hope that none of his people will be lost. He has declared that not a single one of those he has saved by his grace will ever be lost. God did not send Jesus to this world to live and die so that some people might be saved if they can hold out. He doesn't leave it up to a matter of chance. God sent Jesus here to die for his people so that everyone who looked to Jesus by faith for salvation would have the guarantee of eternal life. That is his plan. Some may object to this. It seems like a month can't go by where there's somebody that we know that's well-known, a celebrity Christian or someone that we hold in high regard that has turned away from the faith, publicly denounced Christ, or has shipwrecked their life by unrepentant sin. So someone responded, how do we know? How can we be certain that this is true when we see it all the time? People who name 
Jesus Christ who, who claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ only to turn away and to debauch themselves and to sh- make a shipwreck of their faith. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So obviously this uh, reality of people claiming to be Christians, claiming to know the Lord, associating themselves with the, the visible body, and then turning away is not some new invention. It's not some recent event, some modern event, modern reality that is occurring. This was happening in the early church. So this leaves us with only two possible realities. We are either falling in and out of grace. So you're in grace and out of grace, you're in grace, you're out of grace, taking yourself in and out of it, thus making God a liar. Or those who turn away were never regenerated to begin with. Now, this should not produce concern or anxiety, but confidence. Philippians 2.12 states, Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Remember when I first heard that verse, I was like, Oh, that's, that's tough. How in the world am I supposed to prove my faith with fear and trembling? I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do that. And then in verse 13, right after, Paul says, For it is God that works within you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God's will that we will never be lost again. It is the Savior's promise that we will never be lost again. These things are guaranteed by the Savior's redemptive work, not to our relative morality that we attempt to parade around as righteousness. When Jesus came to this world, he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. He did those things to purchase our salvation to the praise of his glory. And when he died on the cross, Christ was able to emphatically declare, it is finished. That simply means that he perfectly completed the task that had been assigned to him. It is finished. He came to this world to pay our sin debt, and he did just that. He came to this world to shed his blood so that God's wrath might be turned away from all who receive him. And he did just that. He has guaranteed freedom and redemption for all who would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In conclusion, I'd like to ask you, what kind of confidence do you have today? Are you fully enjoying the rest and joy that can be accessed through the gospel? If not, look to Christ. Are you living a life ridden with shame and guilt over past and current sin? If you are, 
look to Christ. Are you currently losing the battle to a particular sin and feel like you are on the verge of shipwrecking your faith? And if you are, look to Christ. Lastly, are you someone who has continued to harden your heart to the gospel? One that has never been able to repent of their sin and believe this glorious news of Christ in him crucified. And if so, look to Christ. John states in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our blessed hope is grounded in a work and righteousness found outside of ourselves. Do not look inward. Look to Christ. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and he will raise them up on the last day. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, we're so thankful for this sweet promise. Father, we pray that when we are tempted to look inward, when we are tempted to validate our standing with you based upon things that we have done or things that we haven't done, Lord, that you remind us by the power of your Holy Spirit that the assurance of our salvation is found outside of ourselves. It is not a subjective salvation. It is an objective salvation. Father, though we may never find an airtight reason as to why we would be made right with you or why you would receive us, we serve an airtight Savior, an airtight person who has satisfied the law to perfection. One who has offered himself to receive the punishment that was meant for us, the punishment that we deserve and took it in its fullness. And then he died with it. And then, Lord, he was raised from the dead triumphing over it. Let our confidence be in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, um, Lord, for hearts that can become callous towards this good news. Lord, I pray that when I am tempted to treat this news as, as a common thing, Father, that you would remind me of the sin that made this work necessary. Lord, that we would not lean toward one, uh, one of two extremes, one extreme being that uh, we are overcome with shame and guilt because we don't feel like our sins can be forgiven. Lord, I pray that we would also not swing in the other direction and take a flippant attitude toward our sin. But Lord, that we would be reminded continually of the horror of our sin and the weight of our sin. And Lord, the work that was needed to take care of our sin. 
Father, I pray that you would grant us continual repentance. Point our hearts to you. We love you and we praise you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.